Hey everyone, welcome to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much more. We have an excellent show for you this week. I'm going to talk with Daniel Cohen, frequent contributor about a new season of the FX slash Hulu restaurant comedy drama The Bear, which is getting a lot of praise and a lot of critical attention. I'm also going to talk to Stephen Garrett about the new Indiana Jones movie, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, which is actually a lot of fun and I recommend it. But first, I'm going to speak with Lonnie Gonzalez, another Book and Film Globe contributor, about recent doings at Turner Classic Movies, or TCM, as it's known to fans who love it. And uh, there's been a lot of protest and a lot of drama around that, and Lonnie will be here after this brief musical interlude. One of the most absurd entertainment news stories of the last month has been uh, Warner Brother Discovery's attempts to gut Turner Classic Movies, otherwise known as TCM, to those of us uh, who love film and who love TCM. And uh, there has been a, there's a, a pushback um, on Twitter and in the film community and the community of film lovers at large. And our own uh, film lover, film community expert, uh, Lonnie Gonzalez, uh, wrote about it for us, and she's here to talk to me about it. Hello, Lonnie. Hi, Neil. Thanks. Thanks for talking to me today. Yeah, yeah, always, always a pleasure. So, um, yeah, so tell tell us a little bit about um, what happened uh, with TCM because it was kind of a baroque saga. <laughs> sure. Well, um, you know, TCM is one of the networks that is owned by Warner Brothers Discovery, which was a big news last year when those two um, companies merged, and they have many channels. HBO, CNN, Cartoon Network, and TCM, among the ones who have seen some changes happen. Uh, some would say some devaluation of those brands in the past year. And so last week, um, five of the top um, executives at TCM either resigned or were fired, which uh, set off alarm bells all over the film fan community. Um, because these are people who were in charge of, you know, programming and um, marketing and, you know, things that are important to a network. Well, and not just top, not just top executives too, like a whole, like dozens of, I don't want to call them underlings, but like lower, you know, non-executive employees, people who are in charge of, you know, editing and who, and writing and, and doing, you know, right. directing, do, doing doing the things that make uh, TCM so special, right? Like TCM is not just a collection of movies. It's highly curated. It's exactly. hosted. You know, the introductions are written. It's a film. It's like a um, film education, basically, um, especially when it comes to classic Hollywood. Yeah. Films. And that's something that their staff was very, you know, uh, specialized in doing that kind of thing, the research and, you know, tracking down rare films and, um, and also creating promotional uh, pieces that were very um, targeted to the audience of classic film and also educating people. And those little short interstitials that are on the channel are something that people who watch really love and have come, uh, you know, to really enjoy. And people who are making those things are some of the people who were 
who were uh, laid off, uh, you know, yeah. staff went down from about 90 people to about 20 people reported. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, that's, 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 and, that's a big decline. That, 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 that'd be, <laughs> yeah. that'd be, a, that'd be a book and films, glo- book and film globe staff went, went down from one to nothing. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And so the film community uh, was starting to, you know, they were really fired up on Twitter. And then pretty much the day that the story came out, then, uh, David Zaslav, the head of Warner Brothers Discovery, was having a, a summit with Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese, and Paul Thomas Anderson to, um, you know, hopefully, I guess, you know, they're telling him, you can't mess with this channel. And uh, then they announced that some different, you know, the people in charge of Warner Brothers film were now going to be in charge of overseeing the creative side, which I guess was supposed to make people feel better. Um, but then just yesterday, apparently, um, they have now reinstated Charlie Tabesh, who is the head of programming. So this ah. is now yeah. kind of let's keep in news. mind let's keep in <laughs> mind too that Zaslav did not call the summit with our three greatest living no. film directors. <laughs> right. they, they, they sort of they, they they called him and they said, "Listen, right. listen, buddy, you know the TC, you know." And it's so funny too because it's like. They, you Warner Brothers Discovery, they kind of they gutted the HBO brand. It's now a sub brand of Max, and people were like, "Well, but 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 at least, but no, but there wasn't this kind of outcry, right? There was because you can still find HBO programming. HBO technically still exists. Um, You know, they they still have the HBO logo before HBO shows, but this is different, right? Because this is like not original. I mean, it is original programming, but it's not. It's like literally. Uh, it's like saying, no more libraries. <laughs> I mean, it is a public service in some ways because it is one of the only places where you can find some of these films. Um, you know, Criterion Channel is out there. I mean, there's other, like, sources you can track down DVDs of stuff. But, like, if you are wanting to learn about classic movies, um, you know, this is this channel is where you want to go. And it's some of the only places where some of these films are played because they were never released on DVD. Um, you know, they're not yeah. available uh, on Yeah, like sil- silent movies, you right. know, like- yeah. no, one, no one is caring to program silent movies on any other streaming network. Um, right, and you, and you wrote about for us too, about the, the, this is not coming back, but TCM Underground, which was a place right. that show, they showed cult movies, um, you know, and it, and it's funny too, like you watch TCM now and it's a lot of, a lot of movies from the seventies, eighties, nineties movies that were just, you know, when I was a kid, they were just movies that were in the movie theaters and then on, and then on TV endlessly, but now they're not anymore. Cause it was a long time ago. Right. Yeah. Those are now the, cla- the, the classics, the newest ent- <laughs> entries into the classic canon are movies from, you know, when you were a kid <laughs> yeah, from the 90s the 90s yeah. are classic well you know i was thinking like you know i don't always have tcm because my my um, list of streaming services and what i subscribe to and what i don't right. is constantly shifting but when i do have it i it's something that i can always watch and and be comforted by and i, I was thinking you know my wife and i went on vacation earlier this summer and uh, one of the hotels we stayed at had tcm uh as part of its uh you know, it's it's a cable package, and we watched a little bit of Cool Hand Luke, and then after Cool Hand Luke, a uh, host Alicia Malone, who's one of the people who's taken over since Robert Osborne died, had the country singer Marty Stewart on, and he played the one of the songs from Cool Hand Luke on the guitar and sang it, and you know, 
mileage may vary on that, but it's like that kind of old fashioned corny TV programming, you know, does not, you don't see like that kind of, that kind of programming anymore. You don't see that on the streaming services. Even if you were to find cool hand Luke on Netflix or whatever, you're not going to get a country singer then singing the Oscar nominated song from cool, cool hand Luke. Yeah, exactly. It's those sort of those touch special touches that make the channel more special. And those intros and outros are so um, integral. And yeah, they don't play on every movie, but they do play on primetime and um, a few during the day. And and you miss them when you don't see them. (laughs) I miss it whenever I watch like a DVD and the movie ends and I'm like, oh, but where's Ben Mankiewicz to tell me something else about the movie? Yeah, I, I want Ben Mankiewicz to every time anything begins or ends, just to like sit in my living room and tell me things. Um, yeah. yeah, well, it's just it's that's that's what people love about TCM is that you feel like you're part of a family. You feel like you know, and you know, you and I are both uh, uh, trivia aficionados, and you learn stuff about movies that you wouldn't yeah, glean just from the experience of watching them from these in- intros and outros. So you know, I'm I'm, I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical that David Zaslav is going to wake up one day and, and be someone who loves culture as opposed to being like a stereotypical rapacious corporate pirate out of out of succession, you know? Yeah, I uh, mean, he clearly likes the idea of being a mogul and, you know, I'm sitting at Jack Warner's old desk and aren't I important? But, um, you know, he still has his ideas of what is the right way to make TV content. And I don't think that that's really compatible with what, TCM has been and you know he's saying that he wants to market it better and well but they market it great they have cruise market it great right make it bigger more powerful more reach is what he's saying and it's like they have wines they have wines (laughs) and I don't know I think the wine club closed but yeah they did have wine but the wine you know, I, there you know if I were to go on a specialty cruise I'm like oh okay TCM's, um, you know, F- TCM Cruise featuring the mummified corpse of Doris Day or whatever. I'm like, okay, sure, I'll go on that with like, all the other old film people. Why not? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, the, you know, the people who were in charge of those programs are no longer there. So time we'll see um, how exactly those things can go on with no staff. Um, <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, uh, the... Spielberg, Scorsese, Paul Thomas Anderson have all said that they will help curate uh, Mm. programming going forward, which, you know, again, they have jobs. So do the WB film execs. They have other jobs that are not TCM. (laughs) So this feels, you know, you can't run a network. As much as I like Phantom Thread, you know, you can't only have that on TCM. Right. And uh, so we'll see how that works. I mean, by the way, Scorsese has been writing a monthly column for TCM uh, for years, uh, which David Zaslav doesn't seem to be aware of that he's already been. Just for the website? Um, yeah, it used to be in the magazine that they would mail out, and uh, but it's still available um, online. Uh, and, you know. And Scorsese writes for them. Yeah. Wow. I mean, his assistant, maybe, but you know, he's whatever the Scorsese brand, the Scorsese brand. (laughs) Well, you know, know, it it means, it means something, but Martin Scorsese, uh, even though we'd like him to, is not, is not going to live forever. Uh, so, you know, exactly. (laughs) Uh, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I have, you know, I, I, I'm, I guess I, I'm heartened and charmed to some extent by the fact that they, they had to back off 
And, you know, people like you and I and uh, millions of others had a little something to do with that. And I'm, I'm happy about that. But, uh, you know, I, 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 I watched that um, the, the development of, of the Max um, blob crawling over the landscape with a lot of skepticism. I mean, I understand that Chip and Joanna Gaines bring the ratings, but, you know, it's, they're, they're not, um, I'm sorry, they're just not, they're not Turner Classic movies. Right, right. Everything can't be, uh, you know, Magnolia TV. There's a place for that, but there's also a place for TCM. And um, Maybe they can start, um, dig, like, AI digitally inserting, like, Property Brothers into, like, the Philadelphia uh, story or something. Just have them like have them like doing a little work on the corner of the mansion or something. Like that. Yeah, if they really need to. Uh, yeah. Uh, so you know, there's some some good news this week, but still skepticism for me and uh, about the the future and whether yeah. it's going to be able to retain the the flavor of you know specialness that uh, the devoted viewers know. Well, we'll try to keep an eye on it over at uh, our little corner of the entertainment journalism world. And Lonnie, I thank you so much for uh, covering for covering for us. Well, thanks, Neil. Thanks for giving us a place to uh, talk about this. On a train right. during the war. And scene. That could change the course of history. Why are you chasing the thing that drove your father crazy? Don't move. Please get out of here. Sorry. Dr. Jones, get him. Hitler made mistakes, and with this, I will correct them all. You stole it. Then you stole it. And then I stole it. It's called capitalism. Our movie of the week is Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, the fifth and probably final installment in the Raiders of the Lost Ark saga, which is now uh, it's now in theaters. And um, Stephen Garrett saw it at the Cannes Film Festival, which he didn't need to. That's a little bit like a little bit overkill. Ah, uh, uh, you know, you that's have, how I like to. You run. have to ride a motorcycle down the down a <laughs> down a staircase. And then leap onto a moving train and then a speedboat in order to get to the screening? Yeah, there was a tuk-tuk race uh, down Main Street, down the Quasette to get to. Uh, and then I had to whip some people. It was, and, they, and Nazis. They, they had Nazis, too. They, you had to they, fight they, the Nazis the in order to get, get into the screening. You're like, I'm uh, yeah. a movie critic. <laughs> this belongs in a museum. I had a fist fight on a moving train with Nazis. In oh, yeah. The movie does kind of belong in a museum in some ways. <laughs> You know, it's kind of a it's a nostalgia piece for uh, a nostalgia piece because you know, obviously the orig- original Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, was a nostalgia piece for 1930s 1940s serials. Uh, that yeah, well put, it. well put. It totally is. It's weird. It's a nostalgia thing for this thing that was a nostalgia thing, and there's roughly the same amount of time at this point too. Like this is 40 yeah. years ago, and these guys were, you know, paying homage to the serials from 40 years before that. You know. Right, and so a lot of the sequels to Indiana Jones. Well, I mean, I feel like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, while a strange movie, was a legitimate sequel or prequel to the sequel. It was, um, yeah. In that, you know, it had the same sort of pulpy vibe, and you know, didn't didn't hesitate to be racist against Asian people, which movies <laughs> new movies didn't really care about in the 1980s. And then the subsequent films, you know, the the then you had the Last Crusade, which um, 
you know, had his moments and had, was sort of a, a sort of late peak Sean Connery vehicle. And then the disastrous uh, from, I think it was 2008 now, the uh, the Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls. That was that was the bad Indiana Jones movie that, you know, Dial of Destiny is the end of the franchise as we know it. And I, you know, I, I think that it is, a, you know, I think I liked it more than you did. I, I found it to be sort of an appropriate coda to mm. the saga, right? You have old, I mean, old Indiana Jones. I mean, Harrison Ford is 80 and looks it and is playing Indiana well, he's playing Indiana Jones at 70. I think he looks really great for 80. I think he looks he I think he looks 70 even though he's 80, don't you? Well, yes, he has Hollywood uh fitness uh, on his <laughs> side. Uh, I mean, he 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 is great in this. He is plays Indiana he Jones. Is. He is like he, he he's you know, a great movie star. He he's playing the his most at least one of his two most iconic roles, right? Um, and, uh, he plays it perfectly and there's a, there, there's a lot, you know, you, you don't, uh, you, you feel his age, you, the groaning and the moaning and the grunting and the farting, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, you feel, <laughs> it's like an old man forced to go on an adventure, you know? And so I like he's that. An old man. Yes, exactly. He's an old man for, I, I liked it too that way. I mean, it was just, he's not trying to be, he's not trying to pretend he's anything he's not. And I think he really leaned in and he talked about that in the press conference in Cannes where he, he just said, you know, I'm old. Somebody was like, how do you feel about getting old? He's like, I love being old. I love it. He's like, this is the age I should be. And this is how my body's acting. And it's part of life. And he's not, you know, he's not some product of uh, major facelifts, unless it's digital, right? Like in the prologue, which I think it was fun to see. But again, just felt there were two facelifts. There was one that made him look 55. Oh, right. Yeah. And then one that made him look 30. And, you know, I mean, yeah, because but the one that made him look 55 was just basically a scene set in a townhouse in London. And that was not a, right, not right. Not 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 really that distracting. Look, I mean, you know, and the, the movie's not perfect. Right. There's 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 this one character drove me crazy. The character of Teddy. Right. Who is a, uh, Moro- a Moroccan street orphan who looks like he's from El Salvador? Uh, <laughs> you know, he, he has this like little wispy mustache, and he's wearing like a Bob Greasy football jersey for some reason. <laughs> and he's the sidekick of Phoebe Waller Bridge, who I thought was also pretty good. She's she's sort of the second lead in the movie. She's this yeah. Indiana Jones is, um, you know, glo- global globe trotting semi criminal sassy goddaughter. Um, <laughs> and she had you know she she um i see i see a lot of people complaining about her they're like this is turning indiana jones into this woke fr- franchise blah 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 i'm like i don't know i mean i thought she brought right. a lot of fun and energy to the movie and was not she held the screen really well and we had a lot of wit and she was absolutely good. i mean she was like a marion ravenwood character she was spunky she was very much of that era and you know like marion ravenwood was very much of the 1930s screwball like you know, snap, fast talking, you know, quick witted. And so is Phoebe Waller Bridge, even though this is 1969. But it feels like very much in in the tradition of Indiana Jones heroines who were tough and gritty, you know. Yeah, and, and that, funny. yeah, and that, um, and really, the, really, the, very much the tradition of the first movie, which I think this, again, this movie is. Now, you know, I'm not going to give away the twist at the end. I thought it was great. Um, and I thought very much keep, keeping in the in the mystical magical mumbo jumbo spirit of the indiana jones movies which which always in the final act you know there's always a ghost viking or um you know (laughs) or or or, or some some sort of a night of the round table night of the round table called some sort of you know biblical south asian voodoo yeah yeah there's always some kind of like 
ridiculous bullshit that Indiana Jones bear, even though like most of the time he's kind of lives a boring life as a college professor, occasionally every once a decade goes off on an adventure and like, you know, see, <laughs> sees through um, time and space or whatever. And, 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 and then it has to deal with that burden on his soul. And so I, I feel like it, it was an appropriate coda. My main problem with the movie was Teddy. Yeah, yeah, seriously, even like Teddy. Teddy was fine. I don't know. I didn't mind Teddy. He was neither here nor there. I mean, I felt like the really wasted character was uh, Antonio Banderas, who's like a bona fide movie star, Oscar yes. winner, right? Is he yeah. an Oscar winner? Did he win something? I, anyway, he, he is a, ma- a major Hollywood uh, presence, and he shows up. He's like, "Hello, Indy," and then like ten minutes later, he's and gone. Minutes later, that's it. You know, I was like, "What?" I mean, uh, what was his name? Did he even have a name? I, he was at a Basil exposition, right? He, I mean, he's basically, he's like, I'm a Greek. Uh, no, I guess he was Spanish, right? I'm Spanish. I have a boat. I will put you, I'll help you with your deep diving. Although there was a cool scene where Indiana Jones and uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Antonio Banderas do a little uh, sort of like very sketchy looking 1969 scuba dive to this wreckage of the right. of this Roman galleon, like in, into like this pit of eels. Yeah, yeah. And I do like that line where they're like, eels. And they're like, oh, they're like they're like snakes. And he's like, they're not like snakes. Right. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, they're, yeah, I mean. It's a nice callback. Right? It's a nice yeah. callback. He's like, I, I, I was forced to bring, drink the blood of Kali. I was tortured <laughs> by voodoo. Well, and I also, I, I love how like at the beginning when we first see Indiana Jones, he's asleep in his chair, obviously drunk. You know, watching HR Puff and stuff. Well, I think he just been the TV had just been on. Well, he's falling asleep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then his hippie neighbors downstairs wake him up by blaring magical mystery to He's like, God damn it. <laughs> shut that shut <laughs> crap off. Yeah, you can see like friends him with a baseball bat. It's hilarious. Yeah. He's like grumpy old man. And it's great. And it works. I appreciate it too. Like the other day, actually, like there were some neighborhood kids playing soccer in the street and they kicked the ball into my yard and they were like hanging out in my yard. And I, I was like, I said to my wife, I was like, those kids are on my lawn. They're on our property. And I, I literally ran out in my underwear and I was like, darn, I gotta go home. So, so, you know, it's like Indiana Jones has, has followed me throughout my entire life. And now, now he's, he's always 20 years older than me, but someday, someday I'm going to get there. So I don't know. Look, you know, and the Dial of Destiny is not like, a, you know, the first Indiana Jones movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, one of the greatest movies of all time, sort of peak Steven Spielberg, George Lucas the height of their their power and influence. Um, this is directed by James Mangold, who's also a, a very good Hollywood director. I mean, he made the fat. Yeah, yeah. He made Logan and Wolverine. He made um, the Ford, Ford versus, versus Ferrari, Oscar-dominated yeah. film. You know, and this, this had, you know, there's a lot of, and he likes the driving scenes. There's lots of car chases in this, you know? Yeah, I mean, look, I just, for me, the whole thing was, you know, it's just my larger problem with movies are just too long these days. Epics, or not even epics, but popcorn pictures are always two and a half hours. This is no exception. And, you know, every every big uh, set piece could have been half as long, if you ask me. It no, just like could have been tighter. Like the intro, the CGI intro in, in 1940s Austria or Germany, wherever it was, that was definitely too long before we actually got to modern indie. I like well, and then the problem with that, too, is like, you know, his face, is it an uncanny valley? It's not uncanny, thankfully, but it does feel like a bit of a video game cutscene. Like, mm-hmm. it, it kind of works, but it's not completely convincing. Well, there is this defiance of, of physics and gravity in a weird yeah. way. But the thing is, like, I, I, was, I, was, I, was, 
I was a little distracted by his face, but I was more distracted by how completely phony everything else around him was. And I was like, this whole thing is funny. Why am I worried about his face? Like, well, you, you compare you know, that fist to- fights on a movie train and, and the shooting, you know, that, that turret that's loose shooting people like crazy. And it's all fake. Yeah. And, you know, here's the thing. Like, well, first of all, that whole scene reminded me of the fight on top of the train in, in Top Secret where the Nazi, right. <laughs> the Nazi hits, hits the tunnel and, and, like, hits him right in the head. He just leaves an imprint of his head in the <laughs> That's right. The, the whole thing. It was the exact same scene. And I was like, did, did you guys yeah. not see this movie that made fun of your movie 40 years ago? I guess not. Yes, um, but exactly. You think, about the, you think about, you know, the opening scenes of, like, um, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark or T- Temple of Doom and the, night, you know, the, the, uh, the nightclub scene in Shanghai. Or even that opening scene um, of Last Crusade, where River Fe- Young Indiana Jones, played by River yeah. Fe- gets in that hilarious fight on the circus train. Um, you know, those are short. Those are 10, yeah. 15 minutes, and then you're in the movie. This was like half an hour. Half an well, hour. I guess if I could defend that decision, it was because they were steeding it with a plot point. That was the introduction of the. I'm not even going to pronounce it correctly. The, the Alchemides or whatever. Cryptonomicon was the name of that thing? <laughs> yeah, whatever the hell it was. The Anthicarium? Um, the, uh, the, yeah, the uh, Anthicaria, the Archimedes. Anthicaria, the Archimedium, maybe. I don't know. With the, 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 the MacGuffin that, that sets the, the MacGuffin. Plot, that sets the plot into motion. Look, yeah. all right. Yes. We're, we're so nitpicking. maybe we're, we're, I had to spend a little more time there. We're nitpicking. Yeah, we're like, everyone was expecting this to be like a big summer disaster, you know, and it turns out that it is. Uh, it is finding. It's solid. Solid. It's finding the fans of the franchise are digging it. It's it's finding an audience, and it's sort of a reminder that um, movies can be sort of fun and popcorny and goofy and escapist. Um, you know, and uh, how many times do we have to say the movies are back? Right, right. But the thing is, okay. So here's my beef, though, is that. Uh, it is industrial strength. This is product that was created, you know, in a boardroom in a lab, you know, in uh, Disney. They bought a big property. They want their money back for it. You know, they want to monetize what they purchased. Um, it's not some weird fanboy homage that, you know, two incredibly talented filmmakers got together and did because they love it and they wanted to make their own version. No, you know? no the it's thing a, is like it's a corporate homage to an actual homage. And that, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, well, yeah, and it's, I, it's not. It, but the it, thing it, is, like, I, I don't disagree with what you said about Crystal Skull, but like, I watched that again fairly recently, and and I was like, you know what? I don't hate this as much as I thought. This actually is kind of solid and as much of a flight of fancy as the other earlier movies. This is this is Spielberg. You know, like at the beginning, if you remember, there's that nuclear test that you know he survives a nuclear test like yeah. explosion in, in, the, in the refrigerator. Desert. Yes. But before he gets in that refrigerator, remember that's a model town. So there's this weird 50s vibe and this idea of like the, the kind of hollow plastic uh, suburban lifestyle and everything. It's very eerie. Indiana Jones goes into one of those houses and that feels very Spielbergian and kind of dark Spielberg, you know. And then it ends with UFO nonsense, which is completely Spielberg and Lucas kind of getting off on each other's crazy, you know, ufologist, you know, vibes. So I, it's clearly that was the work of people who were obsessive about certain things that they care about. This is such lab-grown, corporate, you know, uh, like fan, you know, fan service. And I yet, think. and yet, it's and still yet there's brings, an integrity to it. There's an and integrity think, to it, and it still brings the saga to what I can. I mean, I consider a satisfying close. Although it is, there is a vague possibility, I suppose, that we're going to have to follow Phoebe Waller Bridge. 
through her adventures in the seventies and eighties, you know, there, there's this, there's, there, but I, I don't know, man. I, I, I think, hey, I think that would be a bad idea. Uh, the I think it's thing I will say is, Parade but James there was no, we Parade. won't see what happens to Mud Williams though. What right, happens what to Mud Williams? Say. I was going to say that. <laughs> Hooray to James Mangle for taking the worst character in the franchise, uh, Mutt Williams played by Shia LaBeouf, Indiana Jones's illegitimate son. And just, not, not having him in the movie at all, just like vaguely mentioning that he died in Vietnam. <laughs> that was so kind of weird and delicious. Like, oh, great solve, and actually made him a somewhat poignant plot point, which I thought was like, good job. I hope he, I hope he was in Tom Berenger's platoon. <laughs> Do you think Shia LaBeouf is like watching the movie, being like, "Those, those jerks killed me off." You know what he was saying? Mm-hmm. You know what he was saying? Saigon, shit. <laughs> It's still only in Saigon. Oh, man. All right. Well, Teddy aside, Teddy and his weird little mustache aside, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny is in theaters now. Uh, I, I, I give it a big big bucket of popcorn and a, and a basket of Alam, uh, overcooked Alamo Draft House chicken wings. Check it out. Steven gives it a slightly slightly more lukewarm review, but he didn't hate it. I, I give it a, like overwarm but slightly stale uh, popcorn, bucket of popcorn, and like a flat coat. Half the junior, work. half the junior mints melted in your wife's purse. <laughs> exactly. All right. Like, eh, not ideal, but it works. All right. Talk to you next time. Yeah, man. This is going to be a destination spot. We drafted a quick term sheet. We need more money. Can we turn that thing off, please. How's that not making you insane? I don't mind it. It's a facelift, it's not a gun. Bear, it is a facelift and a gun. It's gonna take six months to open. Six months? That's being what? Confident? Cocky. Crazy. Still thinking chaos menu? Yeah, chaos menu, but um thoughtful. Oh, gross. We need like a reset. I'm trying to start from a place of positivity. One of the big surprise TV hits of 2022 was The Bear, a small series on FX and Hulu about a a grieving alcoholic chef, drug addict chef, uh, trying to um, deal with his family's Italian beef business in Chicago. Uh, and But now The Bear is back for season two, and it is a big hit suddenly. And it has all the burdens of being a hit show with actual fans that uh, I didn't face when it debuted. It was kind of a dark horse when it came out. Uh, Daniel Cohen wrote about The Bear Season 1 and Season 2 for us on Book and Film Globe. And he's here to talk to me about what's new with The Bear. Hello, Daniel. Hey, Neil. How are you? I am well. I'm hungry, as usual, after after watching the show. So this, this season of The Bear is going more in a... Um, you know, we've got a barn. Let's put on a show. Direction the uh, the gang is trying to open a fine dining restaurant uh, on the on in the shell in the shell of what used to be um, the uh, original beef of Chicago land. <laughs> in, in the shell of what used to be a soundstage. Yeah, yeah, essentially, yeah. They're just redo- they're redoing this. They're rehabbing the soundstage while making it look like they're rehabbing a restaurant. And you know, all the um, they. Uh, you know, I got to say, like, I know you gave it a, a positive review and I, I mean, I understand why it's like, you know, it's got excellent acting and very, um, very moody, tense writing and some good moments of comedy. I just, I felt like this season to me feels a little high on its own supply. 
like a little enamored by its own success. And there's a lot of moony close-ups of Jeremy Allen White's big limpid eyes. I, 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 I don't, I don't totally disagree with that. Um, I, I, I want to get it out of the way and say that I, I love this season, but you've got a point. Um, the thing about this season of the Bears is this: the the best parts of season one were the shots of the kitchen, right? They were they were under fire. There was there was orders flying out the door. The ticket printer, the the famous seventh episode that they didn't want take, like it. It really um, communicated the you know the tension of working in a restaurant like that in a in like a realist way that hadn't ever been seen on a, on a, like a fictional show like this. And for for sort of plot reasons, they don't get back to the kitchen until the very last episode. So I understand why they did that. They wanted to fill in a lot of these characters' backstories and sort of expand the or pull back the lens a little bit so that they could get a sense of of who the supporting cast who their characters really were as opposed to just the Carmi show. But I did think it was sort of missing that. And, and, and then we sort of got it in the 10th episode and it was great, but this is a, a series about a restaurant, you know, and, and it, it, obviously they, a lot of work goes into opening a restaurant. There's a lot more to it than just deciding I'm going to start one and opening a kitchen, you know, things do have to be built and signed and permits and whatever. But uh, yeah, I mean, so, so much of this season's plot hinged on like a fire suppression system. It was very, very inside. Yeah, it was very insider. And, you know, I mean, I feel like, um, I, but I felt like a lot of the season also hinged on these moony shots between Carmi and this, this love interest that he has now, this, this yeah. quasi girlfriend. And I wasn't, I, I wasn't interested in that. She felt like a female character written by a man like like someone who like the writer would have a crush on or something and i just i just didn't buy into it um and i i don't know and you know it's just like the whole thing felt it felt a little fake to me um whereas the first season felt so visceral and real i mean look i mean this isn't this is a popular show now so a lot of times when shows get popular they they kind of go into this self-reinforcing i am awesome loop and I don't think that this uh, the bear uh, has suffers from nearly the amount of problems that the say something like Ted Lasso uh, did. You know that show is uh, yeah, yeah to say the least to say the least. It's more it's more self absorbed along the lines. I, I don't know if you remember David Simon's Treme on HBO. Oh, very very, very well, yeah, yeah. You know that was a quality show by any stretch of the imagination, but it was also a show that was <laughs> extremely enamored with its verisimilitude, right? It's it's like it's it's accurate portrayal of life in New Orleans, including there was there was kitchen stuff in that show as well and I feel like the bear has a little little bit of that vibe like we're bringing you the real struggles of the real restaurant workers. They even have like a lot they have a lot of chef cameos without even saying who the chefs are. You know, it's very 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 interesting. And they shoot they shoot on set too at a lot of a lot of restaurants in Chicago that are really highly regarded. Like the uh, uh, was it the, the Forks, the seventh episode, which is really one of the highlights of the season. It's the one where uh, where Richie stages at at Ever, which is a two Michelin star restaurant. Then you know they don't say the name, but they they use the uniforms and everything. It's very clearly that restaurant. Um, but uh, Olivia Coleman plays the chef as opposed to the real chef. 
Um, you know, I I think that was a that was a creative choice, clearly, because uh, you know Olivia Coleman is probably a better actor than whoever that chef is. But I I felt like that episode really succeeded, where some of the like like the Sydney sort of trip around Chicago to eat all the best food that was that felt like a promotional video for you know the well also the route, I, I, I lived in Chicago for a long time and let me tell you that route she took was absurd it would take her an hour and a half to get you know to go a mile on the L from one route you know but she was like taking trains and taking boats and like just kind of drifting around and eating an extraordinary amount of food I mean I know she's like uh, you know not a huge person, but I mean, come on. No, it's 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 far t- far too much for one person in one day. Yeah, you're right. Even that first meal she ate, where she's like, "I'll have the sandwich and the adobo and the this and then I'm like, I'm like, I would have been on my couch for a week after eating that food. And I'm actually going to Chicago next week, and I'm going to that restaurant. And you know, I I can't even imagine eating half of what she ate. So, so that's a good point, right? In that the the Chicago of this show is it's it, there's a lot less verisimilitude in this in the the city of Chicago as it's portrayed in the show than you would think. Like River North, for instance, you know, in, in season one, is you know they're talking about the the effects of the gentrification that's coming to River North. It came years ago to River North. River you know, North was gentrified thirty years ago. Right. Um, but I think that's, you know, it's, it's purposeful. Like there's, I don't, I, I think they're sort of trying to evoke a Chicago in the minds of people who aren't from there. That is sort of, you know, yeah, the kind of place where people can quote random white Sox statistics back at each other. And, you know, I, there's sort of this, you know, strange Midwestern kind of back slappy, you know, dude culture that, that pervades everything. And, um, yeah. and that's just not, that's just not, that's just not realistic. That's not, that's not what Chicago is. Yeah. I just feel like the bear, um, and you know, the, what I loved about the first season, it's not entirely lacking from the second season, but again, I feel like it's a show that believed its own press, got a lot of big name guest stars, to, a lot of big name guest stars to come in. Yeah. Like a lot, you know, and, and just kind of, didn't lose its purpose necessarily but like but definitely it feels like some something that got popular and and believed its own hype and you know me that's that's a problem because a show needs to be a self-contained entity and not not care about the vanity fair profiles that are coming its way like it should it should ignore that stuff i don't i don't care if the new york times loves you it doesn't matter that's a fair point as well. And and I guess my response to that would be um, the height of expectations coming into this season is completely different than it was coming into the first season. It didn't even seem like a show that was going to get a second season. It was, you know, not heavily promoted. It was totally word of mouth. It was this, it was this little thing that kind of became uh, you know, a, a giant success in very short time. When you know that the second season is going to be a giant, a giant success immediately, which this one has been, uh, Hulu announced earlier this week that it was the uh, most watched premiere episode in their history of anything Ooh. they'd made. Um, and that's Hulu, not just FX. Um, I think, anyway. Uh, when that's the case, and you 
you you kind of know going in that a lot of eyes are going to be on you then then yeah i think i think that the tendency is to provide the razzle dazzle and you know if you can get jamie lee curtis if you can get olivia coleman if you can get so-and-so like uh, bob odenkirk is the other one that's kind of a giant star at this point you can't say no to that as a show like this. You pretty much have to write the characters around the actors, I, I, I think. Sure, but look Just at what look at what the bear does, posted. Let's say uh, Succession, right? Succession never for one moment they didn't give a crap about. I mean, I'm sure they did give a crap about the press, you know, in private. But the show itself never, um, never changed course, right? Whereas I feel like the bear got big. And then act started acting big. So know? I think a lot of that may have to do with the attitude of the studio too. Like had Succession been on HBO during you know now, now that WBD owns it, who are you know very very quick to cancel stuff, very yeah. very quick to get their their hands dirty when it comes to the way that their shows are developed. Uh, I don't know if they would have had as much creative freedom as they did. I think they just got. I think they just got lucky in terms of the timing of when HBO was was owned by who it was owned. Um, for the Bear, I mean, FX is a little more hands off as far as I can tell when it comes to like new shows that maybe on the more experimental side that maybe are, are interesting failures like uh, The Patient last year. Um, you know, I, I think if they had a different home, maybe they would have made a completely different show. But, but again, I think all I'm saying about the bear is it is now, I mean, it's a very popular show, so it's got a wide, wide viewership, but it's a show that quality TV people like people who think they like quality TV. It's a show that they embrace. And, um, you know, and, pe- and people are very horny for Jeremy Allen White. Well, fair enough. <laughs> you know, I mean, he is, he is a uh, boy. Does the show the show leans into him uh, big time? He's a good, he's a good looking man. Yeah, that, 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 that all that's fine. Um, I, I I consider myself for the most part the former, as opposed to someone who's horny for Jeremy Ellen White. And you know, I um I don't know. I just think I feel like sometimes the stuff we think is good. You know, we wake up one day and we realize that it was just as bad as the crappy TV from our youth, and it just. It, it just it had the veneer it has the veneer of being good, but may in retrospect maybe not be as good as we think. I think like, that's a rest, like a lot of restaurant I, food. I think this is a lot better than the crappy TV I watched when I was in my youth, and I think a lot of the stuff that if you're talking about the '90s, which is when I was a youth, like if you if you're talking about the prestige stuff that was on in those days, like what are we talking about? ER, Homicide, like. You know, those are shows that have their flaws for sure. And yeah, it was fine for the time. Well, I was going to say it was fine for the time. And this is also fine for the time. But let, let's let not be fooled. Let's not be fooled by the bells and whistles and the big names. No, I think when the show concentrates on its core cast, it's it's much better. And I think some of the episodes this season where they basically did bottle episodes for a few of the supporting characters and kind of followed them through their day outside of the bear, which is an interesting way to like give those characters backstories and give them motivations that go beyond making Carmi happy. And I think that was very successful. Like those were interesting detours for the show to take. Um, one other thing I wanted to talk about is, is award season, which in, in due to a calendar quirk, this show's first season, 
is only now eligible for this fall's Emmys. Okay. Right. right. So, so this show has not been Emmy eligible yet, despite airing two full seasons. So I wonder, given the rapturous reaction to season two, if it's not a lock that this thing's season one is going to clean up this year, because I, I don't know about a lock, but I think you make an, a very good point that they, you know, this is the the timing couldn't be better. I mean, they they barreled this sucker into production because they saw that they had a hit on their hands, and uh, yeah, and you know, and that's uh, I mean, and they do they have a hit on their hands. The bear is a cultural phenomenon. Uh, you know, I'm going to Chicago uh, next week, and I am not going to be able to uh, kind of meander about without thinking uh, of it. And you know, that's you know, and that's that's not it's not always the case with a TV show that it makes that strong an impression. So you know, I got my I've, I've got my I've got my doubts and my qualms. Um, I'm always very, I'm, I'm always very skeptical when something gets popular. Essentially. Um, Will you be wearing your original Burf of Chicagoland shirt? I ordered an original Burf of Chicagoland t-shirt, but I have not yet received it from... I have my original Beef of Chicagoland baseball. See, that's the thing. It's like, this is a show. I'm collecting memorabilia. So I'm coming at I'm coming at this criticism from a place of love. From this show. This show, this show that you have mixed feelings on, you're ordering t-shirts about. Yeah, it, but that's just, that's just where I'm at now, that my entire wardrobe is just a... Is TV gear? I was I was playing uh, I was playing trivia the other night uh, in, in a league that we play online league, and there were four questions about succession, and um, none of the other people knew the answer. I was literally wearing a Ro- Waystar Royco baseball cap while I was playing. All right, that's the bear season two. Daniel Cohen uh, season three will be out probably probably about it's, four weeks from now. If, it's, if, if, if it's it's really good. Don't listen to Neil. Don't listen. Don't listen. That's good advice. Never listen to me. Thanks, Daniel. Yep. Thanks. Thanks, Daniel Cohen. The Bear Season 2 is now airing on FX and Hulu. Wherever you watch your video entertainment these days, you can find a way to see The Bear. Also in theaters now is Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Thanks to Stephen Garrett for talking to me about Indy. And thanks to Lonnie Gonzalez for talking to me about problems at Turner Classic Movies or TCM. Watch it while you can, because you never know. Someday it might be gone, and boy, are we going to miss it if it is. I'm Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV, and we'll be back very soon with another Red Hot Podcast episode. Talk to you soon. Original Production.